you're a note taker, we'd like to begin with kind of, a, kind of a main idea or something we're aiming at today. And so today, Isaiah 12 is really a psalm. It's a, a psalm that, that Isaiah writes. And I know we've got a book of psalms, a collection of 150 songs or written prayers. And this is the same idea. Isaiah writes a psalm. So Isaiah pauses to worship God in light of his promises of salvation, just as we are commanded to worship in reflection to all God accomplished through Christ we need to stop and get, give God what he is due in worship. Now just remember, there's a 3,000-year almost span right now. We're backing up almost 3,000 years to the time where Isaiah lived and wrote, and he lived inside of a, a group of people that were similar to us, but his promises to them were were applicable to us, but different, just because they lived in a, different, in a different time. So many of the things that Isaiah promised would happen have happened in Christ already. And so Isaiah is calling out a people, a people that are mediocre in their faith at best, that are religious but not very faithful. He is calling out to a people that look more like the communities around them than they should, than they do, that really a community of faith. And so Isaiah is speaking to them and calling out to them and calling them to repentance. And there's, there's these two nations, Judea and, and, and Israel, Judah and Israel. And, and these are the people of God. They're so divided or so far from God that they've even divided amongst themselves. And Isaiah is calling to them on behalf of God and saying, listen, return to God. And then in the midst of this, there are these amazing promises that a virgin shall bear a son, his name will be Jesus. That, that, that peace will come and enter in, that God will become with us. And so obviously Isaiah's promises 800 years later take place in the, in the birth of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now even us, as we look back at this, we get to see many of those things fulfilled but also we look forward to, to a day where everything is made right. And so we get to join with the people and yet we get to see some of the things already fulfilled. And if anything, what that should do for us is encourage us that the rest of the promises will come true too. That we see in Christ so many of the things that Isaiah's already said have been made true that anything left to be fulfilled, we can have assurance that it'll take place. And so we join with Isaiah and just say, okay, there's time where we just need to pause and reflect and worship. First Chronicles says this, Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established it shall never be moved, right? God calls us to worship. And I'm gonna narrow the definition of worship a bit today. Worship should be the lives that we live to God, right? The lives that we live should bring glory to God, that's worship. But a narrow definition, as we gather today what we call a worship service, 
where we gather together in this season of time where we, where we sing songs, where we pray, where we open God's word, we, we anticipate him to speak, we then respond by singing songs of worship to him, we give our tithes and our offerings, if, we, if this is where we call a home church. If you're a guest here today, all we would ask from you is just, would you, would you give us a connection card? Let us, let us follow up with you. Let us just see if we can serve you as a church. But we have that time to respond, to take communion. There, in a worship service, it's a back and forth between God and us. And so we're going to narrow our focus really today. When we say the word worship, we normally mean something much broader. But today I'm going to talk about what we do here, what God calls us to this morning. Isaiah 12, verse 1. He says, you will say in that day. And I want to pause for a second and... I want to walk through what in that day means. And so, again, if you're joining us, if you weren't here for the first 11 chapters of Isaiah, let me get us all caught up. In Isaiah 1, God calls out their empty and cold-hearted, we'll call it religiosity, if you will, that their, their religion, they go through the motions, but their heart is far from God. In Isaiah 2, God reveals his hatred of their idolatry. Some of it is idolatry of the surrounding community, the surrounding nations they've grafted in, or a syncretism of religion over here and their religion here, but they've drifted away from worshiping God in many ways. Isaiah 3, God calls out their corrupt leadership, their judges, their magistrates, even their kings. In Isaiah 5, there are six woes, and a woe is a great distress or pain coming upon them. And he talks about their greed, their excess, their mocking of God, their redefining of truth, their false wisdom, and a corrupt justice system. Nothing we struggle with here today in America, right? Oh, good. Isaiah 6, they even, what we learn from Isaiah 6, as Isaiah says, that he gets to see God seated on the throne in heaven what we learn is even the best among us, like the prophet Isaiah, when confronted by the glory and the majesty of Jesus, see how far we are from him. His first words are, I am undone, like I am going to die. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. He says, I worship God with my mouth, but my heart. And our hearts, we say one thing, but we mean, or we live, something entirely different. Isaiah 7 through 10 describe God's righteous devastation of Israel and of Judah by the foreign armies that will invade them. And then Isaiah 11 gives us this vision of a, of a messianic kingdom, a holy God giving an unholy and wicked people a beautiful savior. Imagine that. That's the promise, that there is this messianic kingdom. There's this rescue coming. There's a savior coming. There, Jesus is going to enter into human history, and he will recon, just reconcile us to God, and he will begin to redeem and restore humanity and the earth and everything in it. And then we got to pause and, and celebrate everything from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And so what Isaiah does now is he pauses and worships. He just stops and said, there is so much 
that I've seen just so deep a need inside of people and yet such great a God that God would meet us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our idolatry, in our greed, in our corruption, in our wickedness, that a holy God would come and meet us and that he will bring about redemption and healing and restoration of all that we need. And so Isaiah is just confronted with this and pauses and worships. A note for you, he gives a vision of the future. Isaiah proclaims a beautiful and holy new Jerusalem, free from sin and corruption. However, the destruction of their current Jerusalem is required. Through this judgment, a savior will arrive, providing a way for them. Easter celebrated huge amounts of scripture being fulfilled in order to accomplish this. There's that image that Isaiah gives them in the midst of this passage that that talks of them being like a tree that is cut down, and then the stump is lit on fire and just burnt. As he just says, your your nation will be destroyed, but from that smoldering stump will come a holy seed, that Jesus will come and restore and redeem. So let's restart verse 1. You will say in that day. So Isaiah is looking forward to that day where Jesus begins to restore and redeem everything. He says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. There's a gratefulness through judgment. And just as that tree is cut down, that image of them being cut down and burnt to the ground, that through that will come a holy seed. That through this judgment will come redemption. And that, in its essence, is a foreshadowing of the gospel to come. And so as Jesus enters into human history and Jesus lives the life that we're called to live, he lives without sin, the very life that we live and sin constantly. He comes and does that on our behalf, lives that sinless life, and goes and dies that that sinner's death, the death that we deserve, that he dies in our place. And so we see judgment Even in that, our judgment laid out on Jesus so that we don't have to bear it, that we can be in Christ, that judgment can be removed from us. But even in that judgment of Jesus, Jesus is not left in a grave, but Jesus raises from the dead three days later so that we know we're not just left in judgment, that we're given new life. That wherever we are, whatever whatever brokenness or suffering or sin or shame, whatever it is that we deal with, that not only can it be forgiven, but it can be changed. But whatever the worst thing is for you, whether it's sins you've committed or sins that have been committed against you, whatever those things are, they are, they are, they are able to be nailed there at the cross. And that at the cross, they can be taken And at the resurrection, we get new life. So just as we did baptisms last week, those are the very things we talk about, that we we die to the flesh and we go in the water. And then we arise in Christ. See, judgment and forgiveness is like this. Imagine a baptism that went like this. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. Now die to the flesh. Maybe they're a swimmer and they can hold their breath a long time, but that's not good. (laughs) See, that holy seed, 
that redemption, that healing, the newness of life that we all get to walk in, in Christ, empowered by his spirit, is when we come up out of the water, die to the flesh, no, arise in Christ, arise in newness of life, whatever's been holding you back, Jesus can fix. Isaiah 6, 7 says this, and God touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah cries out, I'm undone, I'm gonna die. I'm a sinful, broken man and I just saw the holiness of God seated on a throne and my natural reaction is I'm gonna die. And then he just confesses, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. And I want you to see this. Redemption happens in the place Isaiah needs it. That coal doesn't come and burn Isaiah's hands. He didn't say, I have dirty hands. It doesn't doesn't come in another form. It comes straight to where Isaiah needs it. I'm a man of unclean lips, so God sends a coal to touch his lips. So again, wherever you are, Whatever you struggle with, it's different than me. It's different than Pastor Vinny. It's different than the people sitting next to you. Wherever you are, redemption for you is particular. It is specific. New life for you is different. God meets Isaiah where he needs him. So thanksgiving is the beginning of worship. The beginning of our worship starts with thanksgiving to God that even through judgment, even though judgment took place, it was not on us. Christ has taken our penalty and we have received his grace. Whatever we have done, Christ has covered it. If you are in Christ, your sin is forgiven. And that you are healed, that he meets you where you need it. Verse 2, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. See, God is worshiped in song. Now, not every one of us are singers. I am not, right? Not everybody is musical. But we all seem to enjoy music. That seems to be somewhat universal, right? But in that, there is worship, which is not just singing along with a song in your car, but it is proclaiming things to God. It is is speaking words that glorify and honor God. And worship, again, a life that is lived out to God is also a spiritual act of worship, Paul says in Romans, right? But when we're talking about worshiping through song, there is something particular that God has called us to do. And as we get little glimpses, like Isaiah 6, as we get glimpses into God's presence, there is a host of beings that are proclaiming worship to God, right? Remember that passage, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Right As they surround him and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so God prescribes to us how he would have us worship. And so God has called us to worship him in song. Not to be a great singer, not to love music, not to play an instrument, but to worship him with words of song, with songs that give him glory. It says this, God is my strength and my song. And then it says, God is my salvation. Now there's There's a nuance here, and we're going to see this in just a couple verses, but God is my salvation is a personal statement. It's an individual statement. And and I, 
In America, this is our strong suit. We have a very personal understanding of God. We lack in the corporate sense. In other words, we hear things like, Jesus is my personal savior. Not language you see in scripture, but not, it's not counter-biblical. It's one facet of it. And in this sense, this is personal. God is my singular salvation, personal. Like God has met me where I am. And that is what Isaiah is proclaiming in this sense. But remember, Isaiah is proclaiming this as words we can speak. That God is our Savior, our personal. That God meets us where we need. God is faithful. He would understand, I will trust and not be afraid. Imagine, imagine you're Israel or Judah, and the message to you through the prophet of God is, listen, that nation's going to come in and burn you to the ground. But I'm, gonna, I'm, going to, I'm going to keep a remnant of you that the message of salvation will continue beyond you. Maybe in our lives right now, maybe we've been following Jesus or we desire to follow Jesus, whatever that might be, and our current circumstances don't necessarily make sense. But like, God, I don't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. This is something Lisa and I get to talk about quite a bit. We don't understand why years, almost now coming up on two decades of her health being so, so bad. But we can always say together, I will trust and I will not be afraid. Right? That God is good even when I don't understand my circumstances. Right? Then I don't understand why things are this way. God is still good and God is still faithful and God is still our salvation. Isaiah 6 says this, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Through this, Jesus comes. Through this verse, Jesus is promised. We get that with almost three millennia of hindsight. But imagine these are the words like, listen, I'm going to burn it all to the ground, but it'll work out. Sometimes that's how we feel in our life. Like, not everything is coming together the way I would have it, right? Well, this is really not what I was praying for, God. I don't get it. But God is still worthy. So worship, God is trustworthy. We worship because we know that he is trustworthy. God not only gets us through the seasons we need to endure, but causes us to stand up and to worship him. Verse 3, it says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Interesting that that's when I need a drink. All right. The image here is, is like someone traveling in a desert parched. That long, drawn-out, dry walk, right? And then coming upon a clean, cold spring of water. That's the image that Isaiah is painting for us right here. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
This is about God being everything we need and not just what, not just enough, but being satisfaction. That wherever we need, when when we're at our driest, at our most desperate, our most in need, he's not just a little, but he is everything we need to be fully satisfied in Christ. Right? As Isaiah worships, Isaiah is through, is in a season of pain. Israel and Judah, the people of God, are so far from God right now that they are this dry wasteland, this desert of a people. And this image keeps recurring that there is this well, this deep and refreshing well, that you with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I love this verse. Psalm 42 is on the cover in A.W. Tozer book, and I've, it's stuck with me all my life. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So worship, God satisfies our souls. We worship God because he has satisfied every need we have in Christ Jesus. The image of meeting our most deep thirst and satisfying it with cool waters, the image Isaiah paints of what God has done for us. As the deer pants. I love that verse. So my soul, God, thirsts for you. Verse 4. And you will say in that day, so let's pause. So this is the second time we've had that that phrase. And you will say in that day, verse 1. And you will say in that day, verse 4, but they're different. So they're the same in English, they're different in Hebrew. And the difference is simple. In English, if I say you, it could be singular. If I say you, it could be plural, right? Well, in Hebrew, there's different words. And so we have moved from singular to plural, and you can see that in verses one through, th- one through three, we have all singular pronouns. You will say, singular you, right? God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. God is my strength and my song. Now verse four changes it. It says, and you will say, and now we're using the plural. A guy I've had the privilege of meeting who writes an incredible commentary on Isaiah named Ray Ortland says this. You will say in that day, Verses 1 and 4, we are listening here to our own voices from the future. Isaiah is describing the revival of the church in the latter days. He is not giving us details about the end times. He is creating an impression, giving us a foretaste of what it means to live in a spirit of praise. Listen to that. He is creating an impression, giving us a foretaste of what it means to live in a spirit of praise. When we gather and we come in here and we, we lift up our voices, when we begin to sing to God, that's what we're doing. Right, that we are, we are doing this in a spirit of praising God, in a spirit of worshiping God. It's a foretaste. He's talking about us here and now as we get to worship God. So verse four, and you corporately will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim his name is exalted. So this is a corporate call to worship. Now, if if you've ever come from a liturgical church or a little more high form of church, in our tradition, the Reformed tradition, there's there's a common liturgy, and the liturgy is simple. Liturgy is an order of worship, right? And that order, everybody has a liturgy. Some people plan it, some people don't. But everybody has a liturgy, right? Everybody has an order of service, 
Some people do it intentionally so that you're working through a series of things. Some people just show up and do it. And I'm not criticizing anyone. Some people do a, a thematic liturgy where if the message is about worship, then worship is about worship. Or some others do more of an, a, a strategic approach to liturgy. And in our tradition, it's really just proclaiming the gospel. It's that we begin with proclaiming who God is, right? And then often we'll have a song of confession or assurance of pardon that we work through that this is who God is. Like think Isaiah, there's God. My response is something's wrong in me. And yet God meets me in that. God tends to do that then through his word often, right? And, and show us kind of a, shines a light inside of our hearts or it shines a light on our lives. And then we respond. And, and, and the message in the church is not, hey, you're all messed up and just leaves you there. The, church, the, the message of the church is always, hey, we're all messed up, but Jesus meets us where we're all messed up. Like we're all broken, we're all sinful, we all fall short, like we all do things wrong, but Jesus meets us in our brokenness and our failure. And Jesus redeems us and calls us to him, empowers us to grow in our faith and our maturity. And so then we respond in worship and we have communion each week here. Unless we're doing baptisms, we do communion as a means of grace, as something that is drawing us nearer and deeper in Christ. And so this is that corporate call to worship, something you might see on the front end of a worship service in a church. He says this, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, right? Give thanks, worship, call upon his name, pray, proclaim his deeds, make known his deeds among the peoples, work through the word of God, proclaim that his name is exalted. Our response is that God is still God. No matter where we are, God's still God. No matter what our needs are, God's still God. The coal for Isaiah is for Isaiah. Whatever we need, God is God. So it's a corporate call to worship. Nehemiah says it this way. And Ezra opened the scripture in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he sits up on this massive thing after the wall is completed, Isaiah begins to read the Bible. He says this. And as he opened it, he saw the people. All, all the people stood. Sound familiar? That's what we did when we read the Bible, right? It's consistent. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. If you ever want to know why we do more worship at the back end of our service than we do on the front end of our service, like a lot of churches, a lot of churches do most of their worship up front, a message, and then they close with a song maybe. It's because every time I see people worshiping in the bottom, not every time, almost every time, I see people, as, the, as God begins to speak, their response is worship. So we put our response in the back. We anticipate God speaking through the Bible. Doesn't matter if it's me, Vinny, somebody else. It's not us. It's about God. But listen to this. As Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, as Ezra's reading the Bible, says the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord. The response is always to worship God. The response to God speaking is always that God causes us to respond in worship. So worship as a community. When we gather together and open God's word, we do as the generations before us have done. We respond by standing and singing out worship to God because God is worthy. Is that right? Is God worthy? 
right? God is worthy. I'm not. You might not be. God's worthy. Always God is worthy, right? Verse 5, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Let me take that first part. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. This is a very specific form of worship, right? Lots of ways to worship. This is one of them. This is a prominent one. This is one commanded to us. Let me just say this. This is, I've pastored multiple churches, and this is common. This is common, incredibly common in Southern California. But how selfish is it that so many people will show up after the music has started, and they're like, all right, if I time it just right, I can get in and get a seat and catch the message, and then as everybody stands back up, I'll just make my exit. How selfish is it to walk into the church and just go, this is the part I want where God speaks to me, and not stay to speak back to God. To not say, you know what, God, you are worthy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship you because you reached out to me. We love because he first loved us, right? Here's the second part of that. Sing praise to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, right? Let this be made known in all the earth. Our mission is to take this message and to tell other people. Right? Worship is great. We gather, it's great. But everything Jesus did after, well, during too, but after the resurrection is to remind people he was alive and send them out to tell other people that he is alive. Here's his final words in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Like that's his final words. Here you go. Here's what I did. I lived, I died, I rose from the grave. I'm going to send back to heaven, put my spirit in you so you're enabled to do everything I've called you to do. Here's your job. Worship me and go tell others about me. Right? That this is the corporate call of the church. It's not my responsibility to reach your family or reach your neighbor. It's yours. Just like it's my responsibility to reach my neighbor, my friends, my loved ones. Not because I'm a pastor, just because I'm a follower of Jesus. So worship by obedience. Next slide. Jesus directly calls every one of his followers to be people who proclaim the message Jesus gave everything for. We worship Jesus when we are obedient to share the good news about the gospel with others. Last verse. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God is good and is great and is in our midst. And he is the Holy One. He is deserving of our worship. He is trustworthy. He met us when we were running away from him. He rescued us. Not because we were deserving, but because he was benevolent and loving and gracious. He is faithful even when it doesn't make sense. He is always good. He calls us to worship individually. He calls us to worship corporately. And then he sends us out as messengers into a world who does not know him. 1 John 4, 19, we love 
because he first loved us. I'm going to give you two things to close, and then I'm going to, I'm going to instead of having somebody else invite us into our response, I'm going to do it. So band, if you want, you can come on up. I'm going to give you two things. Worship is our response. We are created to be worshipers. When we gather together and sing praises to God or live in obedience or share the message of Jesus with others, we fulfill our purpose. In Christ, we see this as a natural response to what Jesus has done for us. Right? If I did something really nice for you, or something you appreciated, something you just were blessed by, the natural response is just saying thank you. Right? Natural response. You want to respond to people and do that. Our response is worship. Our response is worship and obedience because Christ has met us. We love because he first loved us. Lastly, how we respond in worship. At Generations Church, we have more time in worship after the message than we do before. This gives us space to consider what God has said in our service, gives us time to respond. We get to respond with communion, with our tithes and offerings, if you call this church home. We get to worship in song, and we get to worship in prayer. We have an opportunity, not an obligation. We get to respond. We have a God who not only wants to speak to us, but wants to us to speak to him. We get to hear from God, but God desires to hear back from us. What a privilege to have a God who wants to be in that personal space with you. And what, what an amazing thing that there is something supernatural or extraordinary that when we gather together corporately, it makes it even better that we get to worship and respond in our time together. And so I'm just going to say this. I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we're going to have communion. Our elders will be up here. They're going to serve you community. If you're a follower of Jesus, we would invite you to come forward and take the cracker, which just symbolizes the broken body of Christ, and, and dip it in the cup, right, that is, that is symbolic of the blood of the covenant, Jesus' death for us. There'll be deacons next to them. If this is your home, this is where we give our tithes and our offerings. You can just drop that off in the basket. We do that up front. We do that as a part of our worship service. We see giving as just a part of our worship, not an obligation, but an opportunity. If you're our guest today, we would ask you just, would you put that connection card in the basket? That, that can be your offering to us today. And if you need prayer, I would love to pray for you. I'll be back by the cross over here, and I would love, if there's anything, if there's anything you need, I would love to serve you in that way. And so will you stand with me? Jesus, as we gather today, we desire to worship you. Forgive us for the, the times that we have come in and just taken from you and not wanted to give back to you. Lord, forgive us that we get busy and we forget that the only reason we have the lies we have is because you've given it to us. And we should not be too busy for that. We should schedule better. We should plan more. And our hearts should be drawn to worshiping you in the way that you've called us to. Help us to worship in song. Help us to worship in obedience and help us to be messengers of your love. Jesus, we desire to give you praise and honor and glory because you have done everything for us. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.